Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Good to be back. It's good to have you back. We've got some really interesting texts here this week. Second Samuel 6. This is a great one. One, one through 5 and then 12 through 19. This, of course, makes an appearance in Footloose when Kevin Bacon makes the speech at the town council to argue for dancing. He says, what? And then I asked... When David brought the ark, what did he? Do? What did David do? Oh, what did what did David do? Oh, oh, David danced. <laughs> That's one of my wife's favorite movies, and I, I I'm embarrassed to say I forgot that scene. There was a guy from the Howard Stern show, Benji, one of the guys that like works as a writer. He went into like a, a town hall meeting in Brooklyn or something, or debating like you know a community center whether it should be built or some like civic meeting. And he just walked up to speak, and he just read the the uh, Footloose speech. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awesome. I would love to do that, like a town council meeting, just to read Kevin Bacon's. Wonder how many degrees of separation there are between Kevin Bacon and King David. It's a good question. It's a good question. So this is interesting, right? We have David here. He's he gathers the chosen men of Israel, thirty thousand. Yeah, and they set out and went from Bezel Judah to bring up the ark to bring up from the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. This, of course, is what burns the faces off all the Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Yep, precisely. <laughs> it's a very powerful weapon of war. Yes. And they carried this ark out of a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinab- Abinabad. A son of Saul. Which was on... Exactly. Uh, and then they they bring it up from the house of Obed. Wait, now that's interesting, right? There are two houses, it seems. What is Obed, uh, Obed-Edom? Okay. So they, it's, so here we have, uh, is there like a tooth, like, and brought it out of the house of Abi? Oh, son of son. So he brought it out of the house and they brought it, I guess, did they park it? Yeah, there's two, there's, yeah, because there's a big donut hole here in this uh, lectionary reading, right? Which, of course, if you're like me, you first read the donut hole and see what's being left out, which in this case really is the best part. So you have this very warlike procession, 30,000 people, all kinds of instruments, and this makes my ethnomusicologist senses perk up. We talk about songs, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So this is a big deal, right? And instead of carrying the ark like Moses and Joshua did on the poles that were crafted for that purpose, they put it on a new cart and they have an ox draw it in. So there's some kind of liturgical innovation happening here. Somebody thought that this was a good idea, um, perhaps to go along with the martial scene of bringing an army in. Um, we have to speculate a little bit about that. The worship committee must have been fighting. Yeah, yeah. They they had something to prove, apparently. So 
So Uzzah, a grandson of Saul, son of Abinadad, puts his hand out to steady this cart that wasn't doing such a great job of holding the ark, and he gets struck dead. David gets discouraged or angry or terrified, depending on your interpretation of that. And so he parks it in Obed-Edom and leaves it there for three months. And so if you pick up the reading where the lectionary says at the end of verse 12, it looks like it's one continuous procession, but really there's been this Right, there's a drop. There's a, this three month interruption while David, I don't know, gets his courage back or or whatever, but comes back and leads a very different kind of procession uh, to the city. This is a much more worshipful environment. There's only a trumpet, not a whole host of instruments. Seemingly, many fewer people, although we don't have a number. Um, I think the whole spirit of it is very different. So something happens. There's a reckoning there in that three months for what. So let me let me tell you what Peter Lightheart says okay. about this. This is interesting, intriguing. Because of the failure of the first attempt to bring the Ark to Jerusalem, David put the Ark in the house of Obed-Edom. Though some believe that Obed-Edom was a Levite, the weight of the evidence is against this. He is called a Gittite, and everyone else called a Gittite in the Old Testament was from the Philistine city of Gath. Several other places have Gath in the name, but they are obscure, and one would explore, one would expect some further explanation if another city were intended. Further, his name meant servant of Edom which would be an odd name for an Israelite city. Mm-hmm. More generally, David had close ties with the Philistine city of Gath. He'd been a vassal to Assage for a time, 600 Gethites from his army. Obed, Obed-Edom, in short, was a Gentile. Instead of bringing plagues, as it did during its sojourn in Philist- Philistia, the ark brought blessing to Obed-Edom. Noting the Lord's favor to a Gentile, David was provoked to jealousy and decided to have another go. <laughs> so he was jealous. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Yeah, and so, uh, and then, of course, uh, an important an, an important um, development here is his relationship with his wife, Michael, in response to the second procession. Yeah, because she is really upset yeah. with him. I mean, dancing naked sometimes. Or do you think she's upset that her nephew got killed in the first procession? She might be upset at that, too. I mean, that's people get tend to be picky even about <laughs> nephews. It, even if it's not immediate. Doesn't it <laughs> seem like this whole book so far of Second Samuel is about the elimination of the line of Saul. It is. And you know, it's interesting. It's also, it's interesting because you have these cycles, right? Where you have like cycle one, there's a battle for Jerusalem, right? In chapter five. Mm-hmm. And then there's a house built, the family palace. Then there's a battle with the Philistines, right? Later in chapter five, then there's Yahweh's house is built. And then in eight, chapter eight, you have a bunch of various wars. And then the idea is what's built is a royal household in eight, 15 through 18. So this is sort of part of that this kind of building yeah. stuff, I would suppose. Yeah. And I think, you know, Michael does seem to be a tragic figure in this. Um, and, and one of the results of this is that she never has heirs because of her disdain for David. Yeah. He makes sure that she never produces progeny and therefore another, another dead end in, in the family line of Saul, which I think is one of the underlying stories that's being told here all throughout second Samuel. And, and we don't we don't get her rebuke in this reading, but subsequent there's a rebuke, right, and a response for David. Yeah, well, the parallel David. passage for this is First Chronicles uh, chapters thirteen through fifteen, and so sometimes it's hard to. There's not a lot of differences, but but at least the sequence of of how the story is laid out is different um, in in both of those. So sometimes it's hard to remember where where the, these details are coming from. So, so Lightheart response summarizes interestingly. This is a great commentary, by the way. It's called A Son to Me, an exposition for Second Samuel. I love this commentary. He says that David was not dancing before the young ladies, he argued, but before the Lord. 
rejoicing because the Lord had chosen him above Michael's father and all his house. Sharp words which surely stung Michael deeply. Second, he redefined honor and shame. He might have embarrassed her today, but he was willing to be even more embarrassing. He was willing to be lightly esteemed and humble in his own eyes, so long as he shamed himself before the Lord. Before the young maidens, those at least who have real discernment, he would be honored for his humility. Yeah, verse 22, which is after the lection assigned, says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes, but by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Yeah, so, you know, when when uh, we go low or they go <laughs> low, like we that. go high. I don't Let's go on to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one. Yeah, this is this great sort oh, of predestinarian yeah. verse, right? You know, that God chooses us before the foundation of the world. So we get seven weeks of Ephesians, I think, and this is the first week. So some of our listeners might be ready to do an Ephesians series and get kick-started this coming Sunday. Who is it? Martin Lloyd-Jones had like five volumes on Ephesians. He preached. Oh, yeah. Like, he had like, yeah, it's pretty, pretty long. Uh, you have esteemed preacher from England. Yeah, this is an interesting pa- passage. Almost every Presbyterian I know starts salivating at the opportunity to talk about Ephesians 1. So, Scott, you go for it. T- tell us about election. Well, it's really interesting. I want to read from a Catholic author, okay. uh, Edward T. Oaks. Who, there's a, he's a, a blessed memory now, but he was a Jesuit. And he wrote this great book called A Theology of Grace in Six Interventions. And he, in six controversies, rather, a theology of grace and six controversies. And the controversies he looks at, and he's trying to have reproach more nature and grace, sin and justification, evolution and original sin, free will and predestination, experience and divinization, and Mary, mediatrics of grace. These are great, really rich theological essays. And on free will and predestination, he has this great uh, summary statement of what Ephesians 1 ought to really, you know, he thinks that's one of the classic text, right? And he he has the sense then that this is what it ought to be all about. Predestination then is really the resulting realization that comes upon believers when they reflect how graciously they have been received and accepted by God and how the circumstances that conspired to lead them to believe, to believe were not of their own doing, were not in Aristotle's phrase, up to them. In other words, the doctrine first arose out of a sense of gratitude for a gift that came in the fullness of time. In that regard, it represents the convergence of several realizations in a Christian's life. One, that God is eternal and that his very creation is a gratuitously willed gift that did not have to be. That even though the world is sinful to its Adamic core, God can trump sin and outrun the sinner. Three, that among the mass of human beings on the globe, I, for reasons that have nothing to do with my merit, for I did not even choose to be born, let alone where or when, have been given the grace to know of this decision of God to outbid human sin. And four, that the spontaneous response to this accumulating set of realizations can only be gratitude. This virtue, gratitude, is the core of Paul's doctrine, a gratitude that at least, in his case, is so powerful and overwhelming, it spills out in the extraordinary pion in Romans 8. You know, mm-hmm. what if God, you know, if God is for us, who can be against? But I, I think that's great. I think for all the predestinarian arguments that really it's a pastoral sense that, you know, you have to ask if your salvation was up in your hands or God's hands, which would you choose? Right. Yeah. And I think the thing that makes 
the skin crawl of those of us who are more Wesleyan Arminian is just the, the fear that a strong predestination doctrine will lead to entitlement. And, and, but, but if, like you said, it's grounded in gratitude, I think that's precisely where, where Paul's coming from. Now, now between the two of us, you are the Bart expert, but my understanding of how Bart read this was that the key to the key to the, to the predestination is the phrase in Christ. Absolutely. Bart thinks there's Christ is not just electing God, but elected man. Right. And he's the elect one and the reprobate one. Right. He's so he's there, there's no, there's only one reprobate like, mm. and that's Christ. Now, like all of humanity is elect. Now, the mystery is, will some spend eternity rejecting their election? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Right. But but even if they are in a place other than the kingdom of God, they're still in, in, they're still objects of divine love. They're not. Right. They're not. They're no longer objects of wrath, but they're they're on the shadow side of God's love. There's no there's no cursed ones. There's not. Mm. There's not. You know, Bart undoes sort of uh, millennia of the Western sort of bifurcated anthropology, mm. where there's sheep and goats. There's right. You know, there there's the chosen and 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 the and and the passed over. I mean, Bart thinks it's all in Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he's, Christ is the elect. He's the elected one. Yeah. And our election isn't looking at ourselves. It's looking to him. And we're, it, we're adopted into that election to use the language of verse five. Yeah. And if you don't have that Christological thing, it's really interesting. There's a, there's a great book called by Peter Toyson, Predestination of the American Career of a Contentious Doctrine. And he has this, he's talking about what, what happened in Puritan New England. First, anxiety over one's predestined salvation entailed something of a catch-22. If you were not anxious about your eternal election, you were obviously not elect. But continuous or at least cyclical anxiety about election denied you the very comfort that predestination was supposed to bring. <laughs> comfort, in other words, could be notoriously elusive in this system. Predestinarian anxiety all too easily passed from salutary struggle to genuine distress. <laughs> Poor Puritans. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, I mean, I do think that is like, you know, this kind of the idea that you would look inward to know that your elect is a mess. And I think Calvin's method of, of, of bringing assurance is a problem in this regard, like or as opposed to a sort of Lutheran or Bart, you know, saying Luther or Bart saying, look to Christ. You don't yeah. look inward. You look to the elect one, um, right. you know, who 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 you is the yes to all God's promises, Paul says in Second Corinthians. And that's what this whole long extended passage is about. And a lot of the English translations really chop it up to make it readable sentences, but this is only one or two sentences in the Greek, I believe, these verses 3 through 14. It'd be great to try to read it that way. If, you're, if, you, if you had a lector or um, if you prepared yourself to read it in worship on Sunday, to just kind of do it breathlessly from start to finish, because that's really how it reads. Paul just is just exuberant in this, in this uh, whether it's a like a, a fragment or not a fragment, but but based on a hymn or maybe it's some kind of baptismal formula, but he just like has to get it all out there at once. Like he's not gonna he's not gonna build up to this at the end of the letter. He's just gonna put it out there at front. This is why we're here because <laughs> we're we're adopted into Christ. And isn't this great? We've exe- we've a, we've obtained this inheritance, and and we've been promised the Holy Spirit, who's our pledge of inheritance. And uh, yeah, it's just a great way to start a letter.
Speaking of Christ, let's move on to the gospel reading. That doesn't talk about Christ. Well, right, but it is the story of Christ, right. the gospel. You're right. This is one of these passages where it's a rare one where Jesus isn't in it. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's that's uh, pretty interesting. By the way, let me um, ask you, let me give you a trivia question. Okay. Gina, who's the only New Testament character we have a visual rendering of? Uh, I don't know. Boy, you're not going to be my lifeline for Bible <laughs> no. trivia and millionaire. I, uh, it's Salome. Uh, it's 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 the one who danced here okay. for Herod. We we actually they found a coin that had her rendering on it. You're kidding? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I so the only person in the New Testament we have. We, I mean, it's not a photograph or anything, but it is a rendering right, right, of her. Right. And I think it's Josephus that calls her that. Is that where we get her name from? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because it's not. But here that's in the New interesting. Testament text. So if you want to look like really nerdy for your congregants, throw that oh, throw yeah. that baby out there. I think I've already, that's already mission accomplished. <laughs> well, I think speaking of names and characters, um, without wading too deep into the weeds with a congregation, there, there probably is some parsing that has to take place because uh, for, at the very least, some people are going to uh, be aware uh, that Herod is one of the main characters here and uh, may need to be reminded that there are several different Herods in the New Testament accounts. And this is not the same Herod uh, that, uh, that put out the uh, a call for the infants to be killed at Jesus' time, and right. This is a later. This is not. This is a later Herod. This is a, a later one, and it's not the same one that Paul's you know, of Paul's time, Herod Agrippa. So we're talking about three different generations here. This is Herod Antipas. So if you're going to rate, like you're rating the bushes or something, who's the who's the best Herod? The great Herod the Great. The great. Well, he's the he's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it all kind of fell apart after yeah. him, right? You. He was so afraid that the kingdom would crumble under his sons or that they would steal it from him. And it was really a self-fulfilled prophecy. And and no, nobody was able to hold on to it like he was. But at, at the kind of the central tension here is that Herod Antipas marries the, uh, the wife of his brother, of Herod's brother. And so this is against Torah and John the Baptist calls him out for it. And that's what gets him at odds with this royal family. Um, Herodias, uh, the new wife, is furious at him, at John the Baptist, about this. Um, but Herod has a more complicated relationship with John. Seems like he would sneak over to him and get advice because said it, he liked to listen to him. Uh, so it's not really an honorable guy uh, painted here, sort of wishy-washy when it comes to things of the faith. Um, and was a, and was a, I mean, you know, if some, if the company who keeps says anything about you, the reason he was made king, right, was because he used he used to party with Caius Caligula, Kalig- yeah, Kalig- right? Caius Caligula in Rome, yeah. right? So uh, you know that, uh, yeah, Caligula. It, it's funny because you ever see the movie The Robe? I haven't with Richard Burton. No, never have. Oh, it's fantastic. The guy that plays Caligula. I mean, do you mean Tribune Gully, this dead Jew? I mean, he like overplays. It's very Hollywood, but he's experienced <laughs> this great Caligula. Uh, Richard Burton is amazing that film. But yeah, so you have something. And he seems to kind of find John the Baptist intriguing. Yes. And, and yet he's kind of, he doesn't have much nerve. And it, you know, it's interesting here too. So it's interesting because John is, there's this tortured relationship with John, right? Like, I mean, he's the one that inaugurates Jesus. And yet, in Matthew, at least, by the time he's in prison, he's wondering, did I get it wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, like. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because in Matthew 16, I love that passage. I, I found a Bible track once. It was called Blessed is He, is he That Doesn't Take Offense. It was amazing. And it, but this idea that like he says in response to John's skepticism, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. So you have this sort of tragic ending of John. But also 
it's like with Salome that you have the reversal of Esther, like the, yeah. the evil Esther story. Like Esther uses her beauty and her charms to save the people, mm. and she gets this great offering, and you know gets dis- gets coaxed into asking for John the Baptist's head in the platter. So it's sort of the the squandering of opportunity for redemptive influence. Nice, yeah. And what what raises because this is one of the only flashback scenes we have in the New Testament, right? Yeah. It's uh, but what brings it about is that Herod gets paranoid because he hears these stories of the power of Jesus' disciples going out on mission and hearing about the things that they're doing, casting out demons, uh, uh, curing the sick, and he's and he immediately fears that he's 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 being haunted by this man he put to death wrongly, and that John has come back from the dead. That I think uh, the version I have in front of me says re- resurrected. I'm not sure. I think there's some contention about whether that's the right translation, um, whether we're talking about an actual resurrection or more of a more of a spiritual haunting. Um, but uh, but in any case, it's really the work of Christ that brings us to this flashback in the first place, and that's what what gets Herod thinking about what he did to John. It's interesting too, you know, Craig Keener in, in the Erdman's lectionary commentary, which is fascinating. It's a great series. Of, of just on the reading, say the first reading, second reading, third reading. If I mean, it's a it's great for any lecturing preacher. But he says that the verses that immediately surround our story tell us about discipleship. In this context, Mark devotes only three verses to the victorious public ministry of Jesus' followers, while discussing in much greater detail the suffering of Jesus' forerunner. This is because the disciples do not yet realize the cost of their ministry. The prophet John's suffering foreshadows the suffering of Jesus, which in turn foreshadows that of his disciples. And it is interesting here that, you know, the disciples, I mean, Mark is probably the book maybe where the disciples are painted least competently, right. one could argue. And you have John's disciples have the good sense to bury him respectfully, <laughs> right. but Jesus' so disciples do don't even do that. They scatter. They sc- so, so lest we look at the disciples as <laughs> like heroes, you know, or anything like that. I no. mean, they are they are sinners who, who are transformed by grace. Yeah. And and one of the other things that's interesting about the placement of this pericope within Mark is that what immediately follows is a feeding of the 5,000. And so you have this great contrast between Herod throwing a banquet for the elite, for the leaders, the people he was trying to impress, which is what got him in trouble, versus the kind of table that Jesus serves, where he feeds more than 5,000 people uh, from from the loaves and fishes that are provided to him as a gift. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's interesting because it's Robert Capon says the miracle of the five thousand, the feeding of five is the last place Jesus could look like a normal Messiah, mm. and after that, it's it's sort of the way of the cross. Yeah. And I hope that in everybody's sermons, the cross is lifted high, which can even be lifted high in a passage like this that doesn't mention Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being with me, Glenn. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well. 